Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're in Chapter 1 of our group learning program. This chapter is titled Universal Teachings, Love, No Harm, and Good Morals. In this group learning program, we meet on Sundays and Wednesdays in order to help you learn and practice Gautama Buddha's teachings on the path to enlightenment, to awaken the mind to this enlightened mental state where it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. We use this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, as our guide and our text in this program. And starting from today, every Sunday, we'll be progressing chapter by chapter, starting with chapter one, next Sunday, chapter two, the following Sunday, chapter three. And we're going to continue throughout the entire book this way. It'll take us about six months to go through the entire book. Each chapter builds one on another, and it will help you to develop your understanding of this path to enlightenment. As you miss any classes over the next six months, keep in mind that they're recorded. They're in Facebook, YouTube, and on our podcast for you to be able to learn from the teachings. As you maybe miss the live class, you can digest the content during a time that is best for you. I suggest that you read the book either prior to class or after class or maybe before and after class. And it's usually best if you just kind of read about maybe 10 or 15 minutes a day. Some of the chapters are really short and you can read the entire chapter in that amount of time. Other chapters might take you longer, maybe like an hour or so. And in that situation, I don't necessarily suggest that you read the entire chapter in one sitting. The reason why is that it's just like chewing food. If you take a small bite and chew and then digest, it's actually going to be easier for you to chew, to swallow, and then digest the food. And likewise, when you're learning this path to enlightenment, it's a life practice to gradually build up your practice. And just like with eating food, it really helps the mind. If you take small bites, you chew on that for a while, meaning you reflect on it, and then you swallow it and digest it and apply it in your daily life. So you'll need to learn, reflect, and practice in order to understand these teachings and see the truth in them so that you can independently verify the teachings for yourself to acquire wisdom. There is no belief on the path to enlightenment. If you believe the teachings, you'll never actually awaken to enlightenment. 
where the mind has eradicated discontentedness. You need to get to wisdom in order for the mind to acquire the understanding that it needs to make wiser and wiser decisions leading to wholesome outcomes. If someone was to just believe the teachings, they wouldn't know if they were true or false and their mind would still experience discontentedness because they wouldn't be able to get to that stable, steady, unshakable mind because the mind still doesn't know the truth or not. But by learning, reflecting, and practicing, then you can see the truth on your own through your own independent verification, which leads to wisdom. Each student needs a teacher where you come to classes or you digest their content through various resources like books, videos, podcasts, classes, these kind of things, in-person trainings. Everybody needs that guidance, but you always need to keep in mind that this is an independent journey that you're walking this path alone, even though you may have significant others, you may have children, you may have family members, you have a teacher, these types of things, you always need to keep in the forefront of your mind that you're on this path alone and it's up to you to actively pursue the path to enlightenment through gaining the understanding of these teachings through active learning. And by doing that and not allowing the mind to become complacent and realizing that you're really in charge of your own destiny, then you can kind of be sitting on the edge of your seat, actively pursuing this path and always looking for improvement. And then at the same time, you need to make sure you're not pursuing this path with a whole lot of craving, desire, attachment where the mind is longing with a strong eagerness, wanting this mental state that is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If the mind was complacent and lackluster and really didn't apply any effort, the mind's never going to get to enlightenment. But also, if you're craving it, wanting it, desiring it, having this strong eagerness to acquire enlightenment, you're not going to get it that way either. So you've got to find this middle way, which is something we're going to be talking about in chapter six. This middle way is where the mind can just gradually, slowly pursue the path to enlightenment with determination, with dedication, and with diligence. Not complacent, but not chasing it either. Just gradually working towards the goal. And that's why I suggest 10, 15 minutes of reading, maybe 20 minutes a day, because you're also going to be meditating during your day as well. You're going to be having two or three meditation sessions. So you put all of that together, your meditation sessions and your reading, that's about two hours worth of work. You know, maybe on the on the low side, maybe an hour and a half. Once you get your practice up and running, it's about a good hour and a half to two hours a day dedicated to this path. And If you were reading with large chunks of time, then it's much harder to chew on that. It's much harder to reflect on that. It's much harder to apply it in daily life and actually see the results. So by finding this middle where you can be dedicated, determined, and diligent, you can just take smaller bites and gradually pursue this path as you go forward. You're welcome to come here every Sunday and Wednesday. On Sundays, we'll have our talk on the chapter that we're covering. On Wednesdays, we're doing either breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, or chanting in order to help build up that aspect of your practice. And as you join live, you're able to ask questions. In Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can submit your questions in the comment section. 
our moderators will see that and then be sure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I would like to thank all of you who have been with us over the last four weeks learning this kind of preview of what this path is involving because that's what we've done over the last four weeks is kind of given an overview of what the path to enlightenment is. And now today we're starting at the beginning of the book and we're going to progress for the next six months through this resource to help you gradually learn. And you can go back if you haven't seen the talks that I did over the last one month. You can go back. They're in a YouTube playlist that will show you step by step each one of the classes both on Sunday and Wednesday because we did a four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation. And if you're joining us for the first time, I'd like to welcome you as well and thank you for being here because learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha really helped to improve your life, the life of the people around you and all of humanity. It's absolutely the best thing you could be doing for your own life is learning and practicing these teachings to awaken the mind. And what you'll notice is as you do, the mind will move closer to this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. Your relationships, personal and professional, will improve. You'll also see an improved focus, concentration, clarity of mind and memory start to make its way into the mind where you'll be able to use that in daily life. And you'll observe that discontentedness, things like anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all of these uncomfortable and unwelcomed feelings will be gradually diminished. And if you're able to be diligent throughout this life, you may even get to enlightenment where they'll be completely eliminated from the mind. And this is where it will reside, completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. This very first chapter in the book titled Universal Teachings, Love, No Harm, and Good Morals, I wrote this chapter because I was understanding that the vast majority of the students who tend to learn with me are coming from other aspects of their life, different traditions, different backgrounds, and not everybody has been involved in Buddhist teachings. And even if they've been involved in Buddhist teachings, it might have been a different tradition of Buddhism or with a different teacher. So with various people from the Christian tradition, from Muslim teachings, from Hindu teachings, from different traditions of Buddhism. Some people haven't had any teachings whatsoever growing up. It was kind of like mom and dad and grandma and grandpa helping to guide you along the way. Or there's a whole host of other traditions out there, even things like Judaism and Jainism and all these different things that are available in the world. And because people are coming from so many different places and having learned so many different things in the world, I felt that it was really important for this first chapter to help create this bridge for you to see how to move from where you currently are into learning the teachings of the Buddha to really complement you and support you along this path. So the first part of today's talk, what I'd like to share with you is kind of the why. Why did I write this chapter? Why did I start the book with the universal teachings of love, no harm, and good morals? Well, as I was mentioning, the very first thing that I was interested in is helping practitioners to observe that many of the teachings out there, all the different traditions, they're basically founded in these same universal teachings, love, 
no harm in good morals, which we're going to get to in this class and explain what those really mean. So whether it's Christianity or Muslim teachings or Hindu teachings or Judaism or any of these other traditions that are out there, they're all kind of talking about these same three topics in one way or another. And Buddhism is right in there as well. These are kind of the core teachings or universal teachings that we see across multiple traditions. This is where learning the Buddhist teachings can help you to gain some more clarity on the things that you've already learned. So if you have learned Christian teachings or Muslim teachings, Hinduism, or any of these other traditions that are out there, by learning the Buddhist teachings, if anything, what it will do is not only help you on this path to enlightenment and ultimately potentially attain enlightenment, but it will actually help you to understand these other traditions in a much different perspective. Because there's things that Jesus talked about, there's things that Prophet Muhammad talked about, there's things that are discussed in Hindu traditions and Judaism and other traditions that you'll see these commonalities and these similarities where all of these various traditions are kind of guiding people on this path of life as a way to help you become an improved individual. If you have enjoyed those traditions in the past, or maybe you didn't understand those traditions in the past, you can look at the Buddhist teachings as a continuation of helping you to learn and practice as a way to evolve and grow as a human being. That it's not that you're necessarily turning your back on the things that grandma or grandpa taught you or mom or dad taught you or something that's been part of your family maybe for many generations. Instead, the way that I would suggest you look at exploring the Buddhist teachings is as a continuation, as a bridge to help you go from point A to point B. There's actually Christian monks, for example, that live alongside of Buddhist monks. And they say that that actually helps them to become a better Christian by doing that. So this chapter, in a lot of respects, is helping you to see that there's these universal teachings that are common amongst multiple traditions out there and that the Buddha never talked about himself as a savior, as a messiah, as a god, as a lord or anything like that. So anything that you've been studying in the past, you can very easily complement that with the Buddhist teachings because you're not worshiping any false gods. You're not worshiping anything at all in the Buddhist teachings. There are no rites, rituals, ceremonies and worship. So the Buddha only ever talked about himself as being a teacher. And he shared teachings to help people live a better way of life. And this was part of what he had shared. So there's this bridge to the Buddhist teachings, this chapter, to help you see that you can walk across this bridge safely and you're not turning your back on anything that you've learned before. But the Buddhist teachings will help clarify some things that you've learned before. Because where the Buddha talked about maybe loving kindness and compassion, you might have seen in teachings, if you have studied the Bible at all, where Jesus talked about love thy neighbor, right? This is essentially the same thing, where you, the Bible or Jesus described, you reap what you sow. The Buddha talked about this natural law of karma, and he talked about it in excruciating detail. And we could go point by point by point through not just Christian teachings, but Muslim teachings and other teachings as well and show you these commonalities. Like for example, in Muslim teachings, there's this enormous discipline of prayer five times a day. It takes a lot of discipline 
to commit and be diligent enough to actually practice praying five times a day. And in order to attain enlightenment in the Buddhist teachings, there needs to be a certain amount of inner discipline where you're disciplined and committed to meditating two or three times a day. In the Muslim teachings, there's a major pillar of Muslim teachings is all about generosity and practicing generosity, which that's a major component of the Buddhist teachings as well. So there's all these commonalities between all of these teachings, and you can see this bridge going from whatever you've studied in the past over to where you are now. And rather than seeing it as, you know, you're kind of leaving one thing behind and moving to another, although that can sometimes be helpful, you can look at it as those things in the past are actually what led you to where you are today. And if it wasn't for those things that you learned in the past, perhaps you wouldn't be where you are today, now looking at learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings. The Buddha being a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha, his teachings were very clear, very concise, very precise. So this is why we have this real clarity in his path to enlightenment, where maybe some other teachings from some other places, if they weren't fully perfectly enlightened Buddhas, their teachings may not have been as clear for you. Or maybe their impermanence affected those teachings more so than they did the Buddhist teachings. Because from the time of Gautama Buddha 2,500 years ago until today, there's certainly been a lot of impermanence. The same thing with Jesus's teachings, Prophet Muhammad, Hindu teachings, and so forth. There's been this massive amount of impermanence making it more and more challenging for people to understand what is this path that we are on in order to become an improved individual. So through the various impermanence that happen with all of these various teachers and even certain changes and modifications that were intentionally made to teachings along the way, it can be somewhat challenging in order to understand a certain grouping of teachings or a certain collection of teachings. And what I would share is these teachings that I'm sharing with you from the Buddha based in his original source teachings are very precise, very concise, very clear to help you see exactly what the path to enlightenment is. And you'll see a lot of commonalities and probably help you to understand even some of the things that other people were saying. So for example, when Jesus Christ was talking about the Holy Spirit and this aspect of the Holy Spirit, well, based on what I've learned and what I've been exposed to, that description is very similar to what the Buddha talked about with enlightenment, right? So there's all these commonalities that we could go just one by one by one. But one of the main reasons why I also wrote this chapter and kind of shared what I shared is that if you're learning this path and you're putting in a lot of content into the mind and you're thinking about and pondering over the Buddhist teachings and you're in a given situation and you're just not sure what decisions to make, if you kind of look to these three universal teachings, you can be sure that you're not causing any harm. So if you can't remember right speech in detail, or you can't remember right action or right livelihood or any of the other aspects of the Buddhist path that you're going to learn as part of this program, if you just always keep in mind these three universal teachings of love, no harm and good morals, as I'm going to share with you today, 
then that can be kind of like a generalized guidance to help you direct your decisions and decide what should I do in this situation? Because if you're practicing universal love for all beings, do no harm and be a good moral person, if you're practicing those three aspects in the way that I'm gonna share with you today, then you know that you're not causing any harm. And of course, throughout this program, you're gonna learn a lot more detail than just these three universal teachings. But perhaps in certain situations, if your mind is discontent and it's shaken up really badly and you're not quite sure what to do and you really need to make a decision, just always reflect back to universal love of all beings. Just show love to all beings. Do no harm and be a good moral person. And that's what I'm going to share with you today as part of today's class, introducing you to these three universal teachings in relationship to how the Buddha taught them. Because then you'll get the clarity of how to practice these with regards to the Buddhist teachings. But before we go into that, let me just pause here, see what questions you guys have about this little introduction that I've given. The way that you ask questions is just put those into Facebook, YouTube, and Zoom. Our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you like. Hi, David. So I thought I would start us out with a question. So we can go into this course with understanding that whatever religion we're coming into this way that won't hold us back as we go on the path. Yeah, if you've practiced something that you consider a religion and you had a good experience with that, then it doesn't matter what your background is, you'll easily be able to move into the Buddhist teachings and practice his teachings as a way of life. I don't consider the Buddhist teachings a religion because oftentimes this word religion elicits some painful feelings for people. Depending on what your exposure has been growing up, whether you had a helpful experience or whether it was maybe a harmful experience growing up. This word religion to me, it really takes on kind of a life of its own. And the way that I define religion is it's typically an organized faith practice that has a centralized organization. And there's a certain collection of teachings that are then disseminated and distributed for all people to kind of follow and believe and practice. And there's usually rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that are part of that. Well, if that's how you also define religion, a centralized organization that collects up teachings and then disseminates those with rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and belief is a big component of religion oftentimes, if that's how you also define religion, then the Buddhist teachings aren't religion because there's no centralized organization that's collected up his teachings and distributes those. There are no rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that are part of his teachings. You might see places that call what they're doing Buddhism that are doing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, but that's not what the Buddha taught, even though they might be calling it Buddhism. And if you are practicing the teachings in such a way that you understand that it's a better way of life, that there's no belief here. It's not about believing anything, that belief isn't going to lead to enlightenment. Then if you understand these things, then if you had a good experience with religion in the past and you want to consider the Buddhist teachings a religion, then go for it. But I don't necessarily consider it a religion. If you had a negative experience with religion based on any kind of upbringing or any kind of exposure that you had, 
then you can leave those experiences and those conditioning behind and realize that what you're moving into and starting to explore is this better way of life, this guidance that the Buddha shared about how to train the mind and how to awaken the mind and how to make wise decisions. And by making wise decisions, our decisions are more wholesome and therefore they lead to more wholesome results. There's no rules here. There's no sin here. There's no followers here. All that the Buddha shared was, here's what I did to awaken my mind. And he didn't go out and try to guilt, shame, or fear people into learning and practicing his teachings. He accomplished what he accomplished in his own practice. And he was making himself available to others because he knew that he had discovered something that nobody else knew at that time. So he wasn't pushing what he had learned onto others because he didn't have any craving, desire, attachment. He had eliminated all that. His mind was utterly peaceful. So anytime you look at the Buddhist teachings, you should always look at them as guidance. Even if somebody translates it as training rules or sin or rules or followers or any of these other kind of words, you should always look at the Buddhist teachings as just kind of like a humble teacher who accomplished this enlightened mental state and out of the kindness and generosity of his heart, he made himself available for the next 45 years to share with people how to accomplish the same thing that he accomplished in his mind. He wasn't pushing that on anybody. He just dedicated himself to helping others out of compassion. Compassion is concern for the misfortune of others. He was concerned for others' misfortune because here he had attained this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy, but yet everywhere he looked, people were having utter discontentedness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, stress, anxiety. Here he was, you know, in this very peaceful mind state and knew exactly how to accomplish that. But everyone around him, it was like everyone was on fire. So he made himself available for those who were interested to learn and those who were interested to understand how to accomplish that same mental state. He didn't say that, you know, these are rules you have to follow. These are commandments. All these bad things are going to happen to you if you don't follow my teachings. He never approached it that way at all. It was, okay, if you're interested in learning how to attain this peaceful mental state, here's how to do it. And I'll make myself available for the rest of this life in order to allow others to understand how to do that. And that's what a Buddha essentially does. What is it that allows Buddhism to coexist with religions? Is it that last part that you're talking about, the, the lack of rules? Because that's quite rare with most religions. They're sort of exclusive to each other. Yeah, you know, with an enlightened mind, an enlightened mind isn't going to talk down about others or other traditions. An enlightened mind isn't going to look at others in a negative way. An enlightened mind isn't going to try to guilt, shame, or fear people into doing one particular thing or another. An enlightened mind is all about liberation from all of that stuff, getting rid of the guilt, shame, fear, and all the other discontent feelings. So where sometimes in certain communities we can be made to feel guilty or shameful or fearful if we don't do what other people are doing, 
the Buddha never approached it that way at all because that's not what an enlightened mind does. So he didn't approach it that way. And if other traditions that you're part of are saying that, you know, that is the way and if you don't believe in that tradition or you worship false gods, for example, that, you know, all these horrible things are going to happen to you. If that's what you've been taught, well, the Buddha's teachings, there's no worship whatsoever. So to me, the Buddhist teachings are very clean. They're very clear. They're unattached to any of these other things that we see in the world. And a Buddha's interest is just to help people eliminate their discontentedness. They're not trying to discuss politics and try to persuade people in terms of politics. The Buddha never discussed politics during his lifetime. He encouraged his ordained practitioners to not discuss politics. So sometimes today, religion has been taken on a lot of political views and a lot of communities tend to project political messages in their religious teachings. But the Buddha's teachings were all stripped down of all that stuff. And it wasn't about trying to convince people to do one thing or another. It was about how to escape all of that heartache and all that misery and getting to this peaceful mental state. doesn't mean you can't ever discuss politics. It just means that the Buddha himself chose not to discuss it because that's not what leads to liberation. And he was only interested in discussing the teachings that lead to enlightenment or liberation of mind. So the Buddha was never in competition with any other tradition. In fact, most of the traditions that we have today all came after the Buddha, except for maybe like something like Hinduism. You know, that was around before the Buddha. But everything else that we've now are experiencing like Christianity, Muslim teachings, and other things have largely come after the Buddha. So, and even if those things did exist, he wouldn't have talked in a derogatory way about those things because that's not what an enlightened being does. An enlightened being just kind of meets people where they are and then helps them as they seek guidance. It's up to the students to seek guidance from the teacher. It's not up to the teacher to go out and convert people into believing what they believe and convincing them to believe what they believe. Instead, it's about if you're interested in seeing the truth, you can come to a Buddhist teacher and then they should be able to share the teachings with you that are the truth. And then you go off and independently confirm it for yourself. And then you see the results of that as the condition of the mind and the condition of your life gradually improve. If we are coming in with a religious background, do you expect that studying the teachings can make us better in that background? For instance, can the teachings make us a better Christian or better Muslim? It depends on what your experience has been like with these different traditions and different religions. For some people growing up as a Christian or a Muslim, using your examples, they've had really good experiences, but yet their mind is still discontent. They're still experiencing discontentedness. So in that case, you can look at learning the Buddhist teachings as enhancing and kind of furthering what you've been exposed to, but now focusing away from belief and worship over to tangible results that you can see the condition of the mind gradually improving. If you've had negative relationships or negative experiences with religion, 
and you're looking to get away from that stuff and move into something that isn't religion, then the Buddhist teachings can help you there too because the Buddhist teachings aren't a religion and it's not about believing and worshiping, which a lot of people kind of moving away from these days and they're looking for what is the truth. And that's what, to me, the Buddhist teachings are, is they're sharing the truth to help you see what are these natural laws of existence what are these kind of life-affirming teachings that will guide you in this wholesome direction of enlightenment and allow you to gain wisdom to make wiser and wiser decisions, leading to more and more wholesome outcomes. So no matter what your experience has been like in any of these different traditions, either positive or negative, the Buddhist teachings are going to be right there for you to help you progress and evolve as a human being to become an improved human being because that's pretty much what people are looking for that are on this path to enlightenment is how do I become an improved human being or how do I improve my life? You know, some people they've been praying and worshiping and all these rites and rituals for many, many years and their life isn't necessarily getting any better for them. They're like, what is going on here? You know, I need something that's going to help me improve my life. Well, if that's where you're at as well, the Buddhist teachings are there to help you and you'll see some more clarity with probably the teachings that you've studied before or you can just leave those teachings behind and just completely move into something new like the buddhist teachings it's up to you how you choose to do that but as we go in this program there's actually one particular chapter that i will help you if you have experience in muslim teachings and you are respectful of Allah and you want to maintain this relationship with Allah. I'm going to help you see how to do that along with the Buddhist teachings. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and God and you would like to maintain that and that's been a healthy part of your life, I'm going to show you how you can maintain that while also progressing on this path to enlightenment. And if you have no interest in this being referred to as Allah or God or anything else, you have no interest in that whatsoever, then these teachings are going to help you see how to progress to liberation, to this peaceful mind, to enlightenment without those things. Because while some people can maintain those relationships if they would like to, you don't have to. You don't have to have a relationship with this entity of God or Allah in order to attain enlightenment because everything is based on your own decisions. God isn't granting enlightenment, but instead it's based on your own decisions. So something that you're probably hearing here with me, it's all about free will choice. There's not just this one locked in way that everyone's got to learn this, everyone's got to believe this, and everyone's got to be committed to following these rules. That's not what the Buddhist teachings are. They're not a bunch of rules. They're not a bunch of beliefs. They're not a bunch of worship. It's about free will choice. And when you have the wisdom of how to make better and better decisions, the way that Bossom practices the Eightfold Path, while there's going to be some similarities there, his personality and his decision-making is going to be unique to him versus Nick or James or Manal or Jacqueline or anyone else. While there's going to be these commonalities of this common guidance that the Buddha provides, there's going to be this uniqueness of our own personality and what we bring to the table in terms of our life practice. So in any one given situation, there's never just one right answer. There's always 10 million right answers. And then there's kind of like the wrong answer, which is 
Let's not get angry, frustrated, irritated, even though you're probably going to still experience that in the unenlightened state. Those discontent feelings are going to lead to unwholesome results, but you're in the process of eradicating those and eliminating those. So they're going to slowly diminish. But in terms of learning the Buddhist teachings, there's not just this one locked in approach. There's this free will choice. And then there's 10 million right answers to any given situation. And that's where your personality and your uniqueness is going to come into this. And you'll be able to function as a liberated human being. And while your decision and my decision might be completely different, they're both leading to wholesome results, that there's more than just one right answer. And it's really important to always keep that in mind, that there's more than one right answer. And it's all about free will choice. Thank you, David. Let's go to Nick now. Hello, teacher. Hello, Nick. I got a question from I got a question from Kaya. For new people, do they need to do all things in the teachings from the start, or can they start with the three universal teachings, then progress from there? Yes, that's what I suggest: is that people start very basic and then build up from there. While each week we're going to be covering a new chapter, and and some of these chapters are much more meaty than others you really kind of have to focus in on, you know, what do I need to really build up the most, even though you're progressing through the program and you're learning each chapter, you're not going to be able to incorporate everything that I teach you in six months in six months. That's why James has been through this program. This is his fourth time. I think this is Bassam's second or third. I think Manal's second or third. Jacqueline's second or third. Many people have been taking this program multiple times because it takes you a while to really digest what's being offered and then implementing it into your life. And whenever you go through a certain learning situation or a learning opportunity, what the research shows is you kind of the first time through gain about 10% of the learning that's there. And then the second time you get about 30 or 40%. And then the third time through you get like about, you know, 60 or 80%. And then the fourth time through, maybe you've kind of, you know, increment that further and further up. So I give guidance in the book about the core teachings to really focus on, which are the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the 10 fetters, the seven factors of enlightenment and meditation. These are the seven things that I say, okay, these are the core teachings. Pay the most attention to these as you're first building your practice. But in this program, we're going to be covering a lot more than that. But in terms of building up your practice, you know, those are the things to really start with. And those are part of chapters three, four, five, seven, and chapter 11. So even though we're covering about 24, 25 chapters, there's really only about four or five of them that are like what I would consider the core teachings that you really need to kind of ramp up as you get going in developing your life practice. But there's no harm in you continuing to learn, but just in terms of your private practice and what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, you'll see the list about two or three different places in the book where I lay out what are the core teachings and really pay attention to these cores teachings as you get started. And then even this first chapter here, the universal teachings of love, no harm and good morals. This is like a really good place to start because it's a good warm up for all of those other things that I just mentioned. So for clarification, you're saying 
slow, gradual process. Start from here, the beginning of the book, and not to think of things like, uh, I'm a bad person if I eat meat, or et cetera. Just start off slowly. Is, is, that, is that correct, sir? That's 100% correct. You're going to learn things in part of this program that are very deep and require a lot of work. And it may take you a year or two to really kind of ramp up to that ceiling. So you can think about what I'm sharing in this program and in this book is like a ceiling. Like this is what an enlightened being would practice. And then you're kind of gradually working your way up to that. And even the Buddha talked about that gradual progress. Sometimes what we're used to is when you kind of start something new like this, that someone might lay out everything and then say, okay, now you've got to do it. And it's kind of like slap, snap your fingers and now do all this stuff tomorrow. The mind doesn't work that way. Nobody's life works that way. You can't shove a round peg into a square hole and it's going to actually work. So the way that you do this is you gradually build up to it. And the Buddha talks about this. This is one of the biggest myths about the Buddha's teachings is that a lot of people think that he sat down under a tree, he meditated, and then he instantly became enlightened. He doesn't talk about that at all. In fact, he says just the opposite. He talks about how it's gradual progress to this mental state of enlightenment because you have to gradually shed certain things that the mind is holding on to. So you can think of it like an onion. The mind is like this onion that you're gradually peeling back layer after layer after layer. And those first outer layers are kind of easy to, to peel off. But then when you get deeper and deeper into the core of the onion, it's a lot harder to pull those layers back. And you might even be crying a bit when you're doing it because the juice of the onion is getting into your eyes. Well, the same thing, you know, when you first start this path, it's like, oh, great meditation. Let's do some meditation. The first few weeks, you start noticing these improvements and you're like, oh, wow, the mind's getting so much improved but you know you get six months a year into this two years into this you're dealing with attachments that have hung around for a lot longer so they're more deeply rooted but your practice is more developed by that time but you're peeling back these harder and harder layers and you know there can be some tears along the way and that's where your teacher comes in that's where your community of other practitioners comes in that you reach out when you need help and you need encouragement, you need motivation, you need support. That's what we're here for. So all of us working together, we're, we're supporting each other in our journey to enlightenment, realizing that it's completely a personal journey, that it's completely gradual, and there's no judgment of where one person is versus another. So, you know, just for example, say there's one practitioner that doesn't eat meat, and there's one practitioner who does eat meat. We can't compare those people and say, oh, this person's better than this person. That's not what this path is about. This path is about eliminating judgment, eliminating this measuring and comparing. And you can't actually compare one person to another because everybody's practice is unique and everybody's practice is different. Everybody's at a different point in their practice. Some people aren't ready to let go of meat and that's not something that they're really looking at doing right now. But other people, that was maybe one of the easier things for them to let go of. So everybody's practice is very different. There's never a time where you should be made to feel guilty or shameful or you should even make yourself feel bad about eating meat, for example. That that's just where you are right now. And it takes time to gradually move away from that. Since you brought up meat, you know, it took me 
you know, two or three weeks when I initially decided to really give up meat. But I was kind of dabbling with it for a few years before I actually, you know, decided to really get rid of it. But even when I got rid of it after two or three weeks, I still ate eggs and dairy and cheese for another six months before I, I really made a concerted effort to get rid of that stuff. And I could feel the changes in the body and the mind that were gradually occurring. Had I tried to do that really abruptly, I don't think the mind would have appreciated that. And I don't think the mind would have held the decision. When we make these gradual decisions, the mind likes that better. Because remember the Four Noble Truths, that the mind doesn't like impermanence. It doesn't like change. So another way to say that is the mind craves permanence. So since the mind is craving permanence and holding on, one of the ways that you kind of create a stable practice of gradually getting the mind away from these things and making a more firm decision is you gradually move in the direction of enlightenment and you, the mind almost kind of doesn't realize that that's what you're doing. Because if you took these real abrupt decisions and you kind of went cold turkey on things, that's where the mind oftentimes gets jolted and it doesn't like that impermanence and will oftentimes revert back to the habit or the behavior that you're trying to get rid of. So when you make these small gradual changes, it's more comfortable for the mind and they're longer lasting and you'll be sure that you'll stick with that decision for a long period of time because that's what you're trying to do with your life practice is you're trying to make these permanent changes, but you can't make those permanent changes in a snap of a finger and that they'll hold. It's better to do this gradually. And that's where you'll see the best results. I have a question on Facebook from Adrian. I've been told that to be Buddhist, you take refuge in those who subscribe to, for instance, Christianity are Christians practicing Buddhist concepts. Should this be the correct mindset? The thing that you're probably hearing about is people have created this ceremony called taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, or the Buddha, the teachings in the community. This is something that was created after the lifetime of the Buddha. It's not part of his teachings. It's a ceremony. It's a right ritual ceremony and sometimes there's worship of a statue that people will introduce you to as part of that and what they say is that they do this ceremony and they have you recite the five precepts and then they say from that point forward okay you're committing to this path but once again that's something that was created after the lifetime of the buddha it's not part of his teachings there is no conversion to buddhism there's no such thing as converting to Buddhism. There's no such thing in terms of the Buddhist teachings that what he taught during his lifetime about having this ceremony to become Buddhist. Because remember, the word Buddhist didn't even exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. The Buddha himself wasn't Buddhist. He didn't have any ceremonies for people to do in order to start learning with him. It was him delivering teachings and people just showed up to learn. There was no label of like, okay, now you're a Buddhist. So these things have come about after his life, and that's where people kind of collect up teachings, and now it starts becoming more of a religion where there's these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. What I would share with you is that it's better if you don't associate this label of Buddhism as being who you are as a person, because you're going to just have to strip that away later anyway. People sometimes ask me if I'm Buddhist, and 
depending on what kind of conversation it is, if it's one that's going to be involved, I make sure people understand that I don't consider myself Buddhist because that's part of that self-identity that you have to shed anyway. Sometimes if I'm just kind of moving about and, you know, it's a it's a two second conversation, it's just easy to say, oh, yeah, I practice the Buddhist teachings, but I don't identify with being a Buddhist. And if we drop those labels, not just the Buddhist label, but Christian, Jesus Christ wasn't a Christian. He was just a teacher, right? That word Christianity came after him. And if we drop these labels, not only about religion, but political parties and, you know, sexual identification and all of these different labels that society wants us to adopt. If we drop those labels and just realize like, no, I'm just a human being. There's this physical body. There's this mind. There's this human being. That that's what I am. I'm a human being. We're all the same. If you can get to that and not worry about the ceremonies, not worry about the worshiping, not worry about these labels, then that's where people can just say, okay, I'm learning some teachings that are going to improve my life and I'm going to learn this better way of life. It's not about being Christian or Buddhist or Muslim or Buddhist or Jewish and Buddhist. It's just about being a good human being and practicing universal love of all beings, doing no harm, and being a good moral person. And doing that, you'll become more and more of a human being. We can drop all those labels and will actually help the mind to get liberated from trying to fulfill and be a certain identity of one of these labels that people oftentimes would like to assign to us or get us to adopt. Thank you, David. Let's go to Basim now for our Zoom questions. Thank you, James. We have a question from Rick. He says, I get confused regarding when you say that Buddhism is not a religion because, among other things, it is free of rites and rituals. As I understand it, there are rites and rituals. For instance, the chanting you begin and end meditation sessions with to help ease us into and out of meditation. There are also certain days where people follow more precepts than usual, etc. Can you elaborate on how you differentiate this with the rites and rituals found in other religions and institutions? Yeah, so what you've been exposed to, Rich, are things that people have added after the Buddhist teachings. So that one that you mentioned there about how some people change the number of precepts they practice on one day versus another, this is something that came after the Buddhist teachings. He had the five precepts, the eight precepts, the 10 precepts, and then the precepts for the monks, which nowadays are 227 precepts. But just changing the number of precepts that you practice on one particular day isn't going to change the condition of the mind in just that one day. So what you've been exposed to and what you see people practicing around you perhaps is not what I would say the Buddha actually taught. And that's why there can be this confusion that some people look at the Buddhist teachings as a religion. Because if you go into temples, for example, here even in Thailand, you go into some of these temples, there's no centralized organization that's collected the teachings and distributed them out. So what you see is you see each individual temple practicing in a different way based on the master monk or the abbot that's at that temple. 
whatever the knowledge is of that master monk, he's going to or she's going to be sharing with her ordained or his ordained practitioners what he knows or she knows about the Buddhist teachings. And then that's going to permeate into the householder practitioners. But every single temple is going to be doing things very, very differently. And this is where you get this mix in this blending of cultural traditions, of folklore, of mythical things, of rites, rituals, and ceremonies that people have developed over the last 2,500 years. And they get introduced slowly but surely over 2,500 years. And if you don't understand what the Buddhist teachings truly are, and you go into any of these environments, someone can be very confused because what's being shared isn't necessarily what the Buddha taught. And that's why everything that I share is based on the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon is the largest, most complete collection of the Buddhist teachings. They are the words of the Buddha. And when you go back to the Pali Canon and you see what the Buddha actually taught, you can see very clearly that the vast majority of what's being taught in most temples isn't what the Buddha actually taught from the Pali Canon. See, we grew up in an environment where there's just one book. There's the Bible, right? And pretty much every hotel room has a Bible. And you would think like, okay, everybody must have the teachings of the Buddha. Every temple must have the teachings of the Buddha, right? Well, the answer is wrong. It, it doesn't happen that way. The Buddhist teachings are actually these big, large books like this. There's 45 volumes of these books that are about, if you can't tell, this is about six inches thick. There's 45 volumes of these. And you can't put that into every hotel room. Believe it or not, you don't have to believe it. You can go look for yourself. Not every temple even has these books. The vast majority of the temples that I've been to in my life, they don't have these books. I've been to over 200 temples, and I've only ever seen maybe two, three, or four that will actually have these teachings that are there and available for people. So the teachings of the Buddha haven't really permeated into the world, not even in the actual temples. It's really lived as an oral tradition for 2,500 years. And with the oral tradition, that's where impermanence can affect it very easily. When you've got these books and you know exactly what the Buddha taught being handed down from person to person and you can go off and practice it and independently verify whether it's true or not, then you've got something stable. But when you're just kind of getting exposed to oral traditions, that's why all of these various practices have made their way into Buddhist communities. And when people look at it from the outside, it looks like a religion. But when you go to what the Buddha actually taught during his lifetime with the words of the Buddha, you can see that the vast majority of what's being practiced today in a lot of these centers isn't what the Buddha actually taught. So out of those over 200 temples that I've ever visited that I would say aren't practicing what's in the Pali Canon, there's only ever been one temple that I've ever visited that actually was basing their teachings off of the words of the Buddha. And that's here in Thailand. There's this one temple where they have very good translations in Thai of the Buddhist teachings. And they also have some English translations as well. But because 
the vast majority of the people that come there are Thai. They're all in Thai. So the things that you have in your understanding of what you think Buddhism is now, I would say that's not Buddhism because you're seeing the rites, ritual ceremonies. You're seeing people change the number of precepts just for one day that they're practicing and you're seeing all these other things. The more that you learn what I'm sharing and what these books have in them, which are the words of the Buddha, you'll start to see more and more clearly what the Buddha actually taught, which is training the mind. It's guidance to train the mind. It's not rites and rituals. One of the main fetters that he taught, the wrong grasp of behavior and observances. In the fetters, remember, this is the pollution of mind. This is the taints. These are the balls and chains that keep someone bound into the cycle of rebirth. If somebody thinks that it's rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that leads to this enlightened mental state where the mind is trained to see clearly and be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, if they think that ceremonies are going to do that for them, then their mind is still defiled. It's still polluted, not in a judgmental way. We're not talking about it that way. We're talking about what is true reality. So even in this Buddhist tradition and throughout the Buddhist world, where you see people practicing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, I love them dearly, but they're not practicing what the Buddha taught because the Buddha taught to not do those things because they don't actually lead to this enlightened mental state because they're just ceremonies and worship. But because of that free will choice that I talked about and that everybody's open to make their own free will choices, and because there is no centralized organization that shares these teachings into the world, every single temple is free to do whatever they would like to do. And there's nobody that's going to tell them differently because every single temple that's established, the lay people who donate the land and donate the money to build it will go out and search for a monk, a leader who they say, okay, this is the person who's going to lead our temple. And they will invite that person to come teach at the temple. And the monk isn't forcing themselves into that temple. He's being invited or she's being invited to be the master of that temple. And now the lay people and the ordained people will respect that person because they've selected that person. But that person has the free will choice to share any teachings in the world that they would like to share. There's nobody that's going to come in and tell them otherwise because it's all about free will choice. But if you go to a temple where they are basing their teachings on the words of the Buddha, you won't see rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. And what you'll see is you'll see people that are learning discourses, that are learning the actual teachings, that are being guided to discover the truth and acquire wisdom. You'll see them meditating in order to eliminate craving, anger, and they'll be working to eradicate ignorance through gaining and acquiring wisdom. This is the path to enlightenment that the Buddha taught. And you can see it in his own words when you look at his actual teachings in the Pali Canon. So that's why you don't have to take my word for it about what the Buddha actually taught. You can look at his words. But then even when you see his words in these books, you don't believe those either. You independently confirm that they're the truth to acquire wisdom. So when I started learning from the text, 
The text in a lot of cases had some really challenging language, but I didn't believe anything that I saw in those books. And because I didn't believe it and I went out and independently confirmed it, that's where the wisdom comes into the mind. So don't believe what I say. Don't believe what's written in a book from even though people might say it's the words of the Buddha, like the books that I write, you know, the title is the words of the Buddha. Don't believe that. Don't believe that these are the words of the Buddha. You learn it, reflect on it and practice it. And then you discover the truth, acquiring that wisdom. And then you know for sure these are the words of the Buddha because the condition of the mind is going to be gradually improving. The discontentedness is going to diminish. And that's how you know, aha, I found the truth. These are the words of the Buddha. And that's how you look at this as a life practice, not as a religion. A religion is going to be that centralized organization with rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. That's not what the Buddha taught. It's a life practice that you develop wisdom to eradicate your unknowing of true reality, making wiser and wiser choices, training the mind to experience this better way of life. Well, Maria asks about chanting. She says, on Wednesday, I considered sharing my experience with chanting. I have an aversion towards it, perhaps because it feels ritualistic to me, or perhaps I do not know the meaning of the words chanted. So it feels like I'm praising an unknown entity that I may not believe. It feels religious to me. I'm glad this question came up because Rich had this as part of his question and I didn't include that in my answer. So chanting, we haven't explored that yet in this iteration of the program, but I have in the other iterations. But let me just give you kind of a little bit of an introduction. Chanting has been used from the lifetime of the Buddha as a way to remember the teachings. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there weren't any ways to write down the teachings. The language that he spoke in, it didn't have a script. So here we have A, B, C, D, E, F, G. The language that he spoke in, it was a completely oral tradition. There was no script. In China and in Egypt and places like this, they had instruments to write things down 2,500 years ago, but the languages, were, a lot of them were still oral. They didn't have a script yet because the technology to write things down was so new. Nowadays, we kind of take it for granted because everything's written down. But 2,500 years ago, everything was oral. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, nothing was written down. And the Buddha knew that his teachings were an oral tradition. So he used chanting as a way to have people remember and be able to recall his teachings. They would recite them every two weeks. He had an event where his students would come and they would recite his teachings as a way to commit them to memory. And for the two weeks in between, of course, they were working to try to remember the teachings. So they remembered his teachings word for word during his lifetime and then after his death until they finally ended up writing them down. So chanting, there's no mystical, magical thing that's happening at all with chanting. There's no worship whatsoever. What chanting has been used for predominantly has been to remember the teachings so that they could be handed down in an oral tradition. Because if you chant it and recite it over and over and over again, you'll remember it. 
right? Today, the way that we use chanting is people still do it in order to remember the teachings. That's why they're chanting in the Pali language, because that's the language that we captured the Buddhist teachings in. But the vast majority of the world doesn't even know what Pali is. It's not a spoken language anymore. So people today hearing chanting, not knowing what the words are, they might think there's something mystical or magical going on, but there's not. That's not what the Buddha taught. He taught it just as a way to remember the teachings. One of the things that I observed with chanting and the reason why I do a little bit of chanting is that it helps me to ease the mind into meditation. It helps to build concentration, to build awareness of mind or mindfulness. It helps me to become aware of the breath and ease the mind into meditation. It also helps me to develop respect and gratitude for the people before us that have handed these teachings down from person to person. But when I chant, I'm not worshiping anybody. When I chant, I'm not doing it for mystical, magical benefits because there's no such thing. There's no words that you can utter out of your mouth that's going to be mystical or magical and produce magical benefits for you. It's not possible. If there was something like that, we would already know what those words are and everybody would be doing it to magically produce something. Humanity has been around for enough years that if there were some magical words that we could say and it would magically produce some kind of benefit, we would all be doing it everywhere and keep producing that magical thing over and over and over again. So when you hear me chant, I'm just doing it to ease the mind into meditation in order to get more benefit out of the meditation because it's the meditation that's producing the benefit. That's what's training the mind to either cultivate certain qualities or eliminate certain qualities in the mind. We're cultivating these wholesome qualities and eliminating unwholesome qualities. So we're training the mind. That's what this whole path is about. So chanting has nothing to do with any kind of worship or rites, ritual, ceremonies, although there's a lot of people in the world who are doing it for those reasons, and they believe in their mind that it is producing some kind of benefit. But that's part of those wrong observances and wrong behaviors. That's part of that pollution of mind that the Buddha was talking about that has to be eliminated in order to attain enlightenment. So one of the easy ways to tell if a temple community is actually practicing the true teachings or not is if they're chanting and they're telling you that this is going to create a longer life for you or it's going to eliminate unwholesome gamma or it's going to help you bring back your husband or wife or it's going to help you get to enlightenment it's not true and you can see it for yourself if somebody says chant this chant and it's going to give you a longer life okay so your temple community has been doing this for many years right yeah we sure have okay so look around do you see any 150 200 300 year old people sitting around of course not right so that's how you can see the truth for yourself that you independently verify what you're learning so if somebody tells you something their mind might be diluted their mind might be confused they might be operating on belief but you yourself shouldn't be operating on belief. So when somebody tells you something, hey, do this chant and it's gonna help you live a longer life. Well, right away, you should put that into practice. You should start reflecting on it in terms of not practicing the chant necessarily, 
But if this is true, then you should see 300-year-old people sitting around in the temple. And if you don't see that, then you, through your reflection, you know that there's just no possible way for this chant to produce the benefit that they're talking about. So this is where you have to evolve beyond this delusion, this confusion, this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, and see things clearly for what they are and see what the Buddha actually taught. There's nowhere in the Pali Canon where he says that you should chant in order to get a longer life or that you should chant in order to eliminate unwholesome karma or you should chant in order to get more wealth or a nicer house or, or even get to enlightenment. Chanting is not part of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment. There is no step that says right chanting, right? So if you look at the words of the Buddha and you use that as your foundation, then you can see what did the Buddha truly, truly teach and what is it that leads to enlightenment. And the more you learn that, you reflect on it and you practice it. You see the truth for yourself that the condition of the mind is gradually improving. Well, Lemurian says, thank you. I understand the idea of easing the mind into meditation. The tune is coming. I'm interested in the translation of the Pali words you are using in chanting. Yeah, we're going to get to that in about four weeks from now when I do the chanting class. We're going to do a four-part series. So I kind of gradually build you guys up. What I used to do in the past is I would do one class of breathing mindfulness, one of loving kindness, and one of chanting. But now I do kind of four breathing mindfulness, four loving kindness, and four chanting. And students have mentioned that this is actually much more helpful for them because it gradually builds them up. So I'm gradually building you up. And you may or may not have been in the very first class that I taught where I did meditation. I think it was the second class of the breathing mindfulness meditation class where I said, you know, I'm going to do some chanting just to ease us into meditation a little bit. There's no magical, mystical things here that I'm doing with chanting. It's just a way to ease us into meditation. And I'll discuss it in more detail later in a future class. So I didn't give you guys all the details on chanting yet because I'm going to do that in a future class. And you'll see me go through point by point explaining what chanting is and why I do it. But then at the same time, I'm going to share with you guys in that class, if you're not interested in doing it, don't do it. Because not everybody needs to do chanting in order to attain enlightenment. There's people who are enlightened that don't do Buddhist chanting. So if you don't feel comfortable with it or if you learn it and you try it a few times and you're like, mm, it's just not my cup of tea, then you can completely leave it to the side and you don't even need to do chanting. So I'll make it very clear for you as I go through this program, these are the things you need to learn in order to attain enlightenment. And if there's one or two things, there's not very many that I teach like that. Like chanting, I share with you like, okay, this is something that you don't need to do, but here's why I do it. And because this is why I'm doing it, if you choose to not do chanting, then just find other things for yourself that accomplish these same goals. And I make that very clear. Chanting is probably the only thing that I can think of. And there's one other thing that I can think of that I do that I share in this book in chapter 11. And I say, you know, this isn't required for everyone to do this, but I do it for specific reasons. And then I let you know what those reasons are and then say, you know, it's up to you whether you choose to do this or not. 
Hi, David. We have one more follow-up on chanting from YouTube. Sure. It asks, is there a reason you do not chant in English? I ask this because I haven't heard anyone chant in English. I used to chant some in English. When I was doing chanting in America and I had a large community there, we used to do uh, Buddhist chants in Pali, and then there were some that we did in English. And I kind of liked it. I thought it was really nice, but I haven't really done that with any of the Buddhist chants. The chant that I used to do was a chant from our medical practices. I used to do traditional Thai medicine, and there there's a chant that we do for the doctor of the Buddha. And we used to do this, this chant in English, but all the Buddhist chants are in Pali, and I don't chant them in English, although I know there are some communities that do. And the way that I introduce chanting and I teach it is I say, okay, here's what it is. I explain all the details of it and then explain why I'm doing it. And then I say, okay, it's up to you whether you choose to do this or not, because it's not a required part of practice. What I'm really most interested in sharing as a teacher is what are the core teachings to the path to enlightenment and sharing that with you. So rather than try to kind of create this English chanting that we would develop and kind of making that something that we do, I would rather just kind of stick to the Buddhist chanting of in Pali or just let people know like, okay, you don't have to practice this at all because it's not part of the core path. And you'll see when I teach that class, the way that I teach it to help you understand how to practice it or not. Thank you, David. There are no further questions at this time. Okay, so let's move on further to what I plan to discuss in relationship to these universal teachings. So these universal teachings are commonalities of things that I see across multiple traditions in the Buddhist teachings, but also in these other traditions as well. And I'll just introduce them to you and share them with you. And you can kind of use it in your back pocket, like I said, as a way of if all else fails and you can't remember any of the other teachings and you're in a situation where you need to address something, you can look at these universal teachings and be sure to practice them and you'll know that you're on the right track and you're not causing any harm. This first one is called universal love of all beings. This is loving kindness and compassion for all beings. And we're going to talk about loving kindness and compassion in chapter 14, but just as an introduction to it, loving kindness is this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, where you have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. Because of cultivating this in the mind, which we're going to start with on Wednesday, when you cultivate this in the mind, then it comes out through your intentions, your speech, and your actions. So by cultivating loving kindness through meditation and then practicing it in your intention, speech, and actions, it's going to produce wholesome results for you. And likewise, compassion is the same thing. It's a different definition, but it's the same in terms of if you cultivate this in the mind and you practice it through your intention, speech, and actions, then it will produce wholesome results for you. So these are wholesome qualities that need to be cultivated in the mind. Compassion is a concern for the misfortune of others, where you see people in misfortune, whether it's poverty or famine or someone just slip and fell on the floor. Rather than laughing at someone, you know, be concerned and you know, help them up and are you okay? Uh, whereas if you started laughing at someone who slipped and fell, 
you're probably going to damage your relationship and other people around you might kind of look a little bit odd like you know they're laughing because someone tripped and hurt themselves so by you cultivating this compassion where you have a concern for the misfortune of others and not just people who are in poverty and famine and who slip and fall but people who are experiencing discontentedness when you see people who are irate and angry and enraged having concern for their misfortune is really helpful. And if you can cultivate these two mental qualities, then you'll be practicing this universal love of all beings. And you'll see this throughout multiple traditions, not explained using the same words necessarily, but this is a kind of universal teaching that you'll see across traditions. And then the second one is do no harm. As part of the Eightfold Path that I introduced to you guys in the first part of this program, there's three parts to right intention, but two of those parts of right intention are a practice of non-ill will and a practice of harmlessness, where you're not interested in harming other beings. So by practicing doing no harm, where you're not interested in harming through your intentions, you're not interested in harming through your speech, you're not interested in harming through your actions, you're not interested in harming through your livelihood and things like this, then that intention to do no harm to other beings will permeate throughout all aspects of your practice, whether it's the way you speak or the way you function in personal and professional relationships. Whereas if you have this ill will or this cruelty in the mind, then the mind is going to produce intentions, speech, and actions that are harmful to others. And anytime you put out harm, harm is going to come back to you. So having this practice of doing no harm is a universal teaching is something that will be highly beneficial for you in your practice and developing towards enlightenment. And again, this is another universal teaching that you'll see throughout teachings like Jesus Christ, Prophet Muhammad, Hinduism, and Judaism and other teachings as well is this kind of aspect of one's practice of doing no harm. And we can see this very clearly in the Buddhist teachings as part of right intention. And then there's this third universal teaching, which is to be a good moral person. Morals are kind of living life to a higher standard, kind of high principles of conduct or moral conduct. The Eightfold Path of the Buddhas explain this as part of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. But if you take those same teachings that the Buddha shared, he, again, delivered it very concisely, very precisely, very clearly. But if you take those aspects of right speech, right action, right livelihood, you will see something similar to that in all of these other traditions. They'll be used and explained in their own ways, but they're essentially the same thing, that we have this moral conduct that we're conducting ourselves through our speech, our actions, and our livelihood in a way that we hold high principles and high standards of conduct for ourselves, because we know that that's a good way of being. That's a good thing to do, that practicing universal love of all beings, do no harm, and being a good moral person, this is going to create better results for us. Whereas if we would practice the opposite of these things, it's going to be unwholesome decisions, therefore it's going to produce unwholesome results. So if we were hateful, instead of having universal love for all beings, 
if we were hateful, if we were angry, if we had ill will, this is going to come out to people around us. People are going to get used to us treating them that way, and they're going to treat us that way. That's the gamma coming back to us. That's the results of our decisions. This gamma or karma, it's not this mystical, magical thing in the sky. It's right here, right now. It's what you put out, it's going to come back, either wholesome or unwholesome. Because when you treat people with love for all beings, then that's what will come back to you. Or when you treat people hateful or with cruelty, that's what's going to come back to you. And you can test this for yourself. You don't have to believe me, right? Go around and be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to people. Day after day after day after day. Moment after moment after moment. Sure, there's going to still be some people for the first few weeks and months that treat you unkind. But more and more, you're going to see the more you treat people polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, that's what's going to come back to you. Start referring to people as sir and ma'am and thank you and you're welcome and I appreciate that so much. You're so kind. I appreciate your generosity. Start sharing these kind of phrases with people as you move throughout your day and you'll see that life gets easier and easier because people are going to start associating this love that you have for others with you and they're going to treat you exactly the same way. My son, he's nine years old now, and I kind of knew when he was an infant, he was a baby, that someday, of course, he's going to start talking. And in my family growing up, we never told each other that we love each other. Like, I actually questioned whether my family loved me for a really long time. It wasn't until, you know, my mid-20s or 30s that I kind of asked my grandmother, you know, does granddad actually love me? Or, or, you know, what do you think? Does mom actually love me? Because she was the one person that I could talk to. We didn't talk and tell each other we love each other growing up. So when my son was born and I knew he was going to be talking someday, I was interested in him sharing with me that he loves me. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm ever interested in him sharing that he loves me, then I'm going to have to share with him that I love him. Because if I tell him all the time or occasionally that I love him, then he will slowly adopt that way of being and he'll share that with me. So even before he started, you know, talking, as a lot of people do with an infant or with a baby, you can tell them, I love you. I love you. Oh, you're so cute. You know, we can do these things. And then by the time my son grew up and he got older and older, he started telling me and his mom, you know, I love you, dad, or I love you, mom. Not because I told him to do it, not because I asked him to do it, but just because there was probably three, four, five years where I was saying those things to him from infancy all the way up to three, four, five years old. And then when he started talking, he eventually started saying, I love you. Well, why? Because that's my gamma. That's the results of my decisions. Because I said, I love you often and frequently, he started saying it to me. Whereas if I was a hateful father and if I was vindictive and I was aggressive with him and hostile with him growing up, that's the way that he would have been towards me. So you can see this in your life that if you have a lot of hostility around you, a lot of anger and irritation and aggressiveness around you, that's because that's what you're choosing. You're probably functioning in that same way and or you're choosing those kind of people to be around you. Whereas if you're noticing that people are pretty loving and very kind and friendly around you, that's because that's what you're putting out. 
So by you practicing universal love for all beings, you will see that this will result in coming back to you. And conversely, if you practice the opposite, cruelty and hatefulness, then that's what will come back to you. And the same thing with doing no harm. If you practice doing no harm, and that's the intention that you have in the mind, then that's what you will see coming back. But conversely, if you are interested in harming and you went around killing animals or scratching people's cars or not really taking care of people's possessions when they let you borrow things and you kind of were rough with them and returned them broken without replacing them or repairing them. If you cause harm to people, then that's what's going to come back to you. If you cause harm to any beings, that harm is going to come back to you. And also with this good morality or being a good moral person, if you practice that, then that's what you see people will practice around you. Whereas if you're unwholesome and you aren't practicing good morals, let's just say you're stealing and you're lying and you're having sexual misconduct and you're using drugs and substances that cause heedlessness and doing these other unwholesome things in the world, then you're going to attract those kinds of individuals to spend time with you and you're going to be okay with that. And more and more people are going to be practicing those kind of things around you. So it's when you clean up your practice that you will attract more and more wholesomeness in your life and you will see that things will gradually improve. There's certainly this training that you need to do with the mind in order to cultivate this mind in order to practice these things. But the more that you do cultivate that mind, purify the mind and train the mind to practice in good, wholesome ways, then more and more people around you will be practicing in that same way. And you will see the condition of your mind and the condition of your life gradually improve. And these are the three universal teachings that I see across all these traditions with the exposure that I've had to various traditions. And I would encourage you all to take note of this and reflect on this and look at this as a way of kind of a baseline teachings that will then propel you on the path to enlightenment and also be that kind of fallback teachings that should you ever be confused and you're not quite sure how to actually practice the teachings in a certain situation, you can kind of fall back to these three universal teachings and make sure that you're always practicing with universal love for all beings, do no harm and be a good moral person. So let me turn the rest of the class over to you guys for any questions that you have. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. Let's start off with a question from Nick. Hello, teacher. I got a question from Christina coming in. She asks, when others are set to do you harm, how do you protect yourself but still show love, compassion, and doing no harm. If somebody was meaning to do me harm, either physically or verbally, I would just remove myself out of the situation and just completely go away from that person 100%. Because if somebody's meaning to do you harm, there just is no reason to be around them. And you maintain the loving kindness and compassion in your mind for them, that moving away from somebody doesn't mean you're judging them, you're looking down on them, you consider them a bad person. Instead, you maintain that loving kindness, you maintain that compassion in the mind, but you just know that it's unwise for you to continue to be around this person. 
So all the teachings of the Buddha, they balance on discernment or wise decision making. There's never a time where you should be practicing so much loving kindness and compassion that you're putting yourself in situations where you can be harmed physically, verbally, sexually, or otherwise, right? Mentally even. And because if you did that, you wouldn't be showing loving kindness and compassion for yourself. The number one kind of guiding light to all of these teachings, particularly loving kindness and compassion, is you have to show loving kindness and compassion to all beings. And you are a being. So if you allow yourself to be in a situation and you've made a decision to be in a situation that is harmful or the situation becomes harmful, you have to have enough loving kindness and compassion for yourself that you choose to walk away from the situation and not look back. Because it doesn't make sense to dwell in a situation where harm can come to you. The whole goal of this path is to eliminate harm and extinguish it. So if there's any kind of physical, mental, sexual, verbal harm that people are constantly bombarding you with, then you should move away from that with one caveat. You have to also look at whether the harm that you're perceiving, is it true harm or is it just something that your mind is perceiving? So, of course, if someone's standing there with a bloody knife, that's physical harm. You need to kind of move away. But if someone says something like, oh, what did you do with your hair today? Right. And you get offended by that. They haven't necessarily done anything wrong, but the mind is just choosing to get painful feelings and irritated and angry with that person. So you've always got to evaluate with this discernment. Is this true harm that's coming to me that this person is trying to inflict on me? Or is this harm that I'm perceiving in the mind just painful feelings associated with my own craving, desire, attachment? And if it's just perceived harm, if it's just painful feelings based on your own craving, desire, attachment, then the real problem here is your craving, desire, attachment. You've got to eliminate that. Because if you just walked away from every time you received painful feelings based on your own craving, desire, attachments, if you kind of push those people away, that would be aversion. And you're going to just be blocking people out of your life. So this discernment, this wise decision making, this inner reflection that you do as part of your journey, whenever any particular situation happens, if it's immediate harm, if it's obvious physical, mental, verbal, or sexual harm, we know what that stuff looks like and you distance yourself from that and you don't look back. But in terms of the painful feelings that come into the mind based on your craving, desire, attachment, that's where you've got to practice right view and know that you're causing your own painful feelings there and you've got to eradicate the craving, desire, attachment that's bringing those painful feelings up and it wasn't this other person that's causing those painful feelings. That's really important to look at that discernment and figure that out while also showing loving kindness and compassion for yourself. Follow up to that, sir. Three persons come to mind and how to deal with them if they're the ones causing harm. Examples appear at work. Another example, a boss at work. Another example, an ex-spouse. People you can't remove yourself from. 
you can actually remove yourself from everybody and anybody. Everything that we do in life is a personal choice. So all of those particular situations, you can remove yourself from. You can change jobs. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but if you're in a a toxic work environment, you can move to a better environment and it might take you time to do that. And that's part of cleaning up your karma. Once you start practicing this path and you start understanding these good, wholesome teachings, the more you understand these teachings, the more harm you're going to see in the world. If you came to this path because of discontentedness that you're experiencing and you're trying to look for a way to improve your own life, well, the more that you learn this path and you understand the cause of discontentedness and all these other wholesome teachings, you're just going to see nothing but complete suffering in the world, probably everywhere around you, particularly in environments where people aren't practicing the Buddhist teachings. Here in Thailand, when I go out, people are smiling, people are friendly, people are respectful. There's an occasional person, but not very much. I mean, everyone here is is really quite nice and quite warm and quite loving. But in other environments that you might go to where people aren't practicing these teachings, it can be quite harsh. But you've always got to keep in mind that it's your choice. Even with an ex-spouse, if you've got children with an ex-spouse and this person is angry and aggressive and vindictive, you've removed yourself from them. They are an ex-spouse. Now you're just kind of sharing custody maybe with a child and you come in contact with them every once in a while. And while they may have certain things that they're trying to do to harm you, if you're practicing these good, wholesome teachings, they can't harm you. So, for example, I don't know that this is true because, Christian, I don't know you that well yet, but let's just say an ex-spouse is trying to take over custody of a child and they're kind of lying to the court about you, for example. Well, if you're practicing these good, wholesome teachings, you're not doing anything harmful in the world. There's just no evidence that you are a harmful person. So therefore, there's nothing that can be presented to the court in order to have your child removed from you, for example, right? This is just an example. So the person is an ex-spouse, so you've made that choice to leave from them, but occasionally, yeah, you're going to still be around them. And that's the results of your decisions from the past. You chose this person to be a spouse at one point. You chose for this person to be the father of your child at one point. And those are all decisions that you made. And now, you're experiencing the results of those decisions. And while this person may be hostile and aggressive and vindictive, you only see that person a limited time and you're having to slowly distance yourself from that. But by you practicing these good, wholesome teachings, there's no harm that this person can do to you. And then the boss example, like I mentioned, maybe you can't leave today or tomorrow, but you can work towards a different environment if that's what you choose. Because everything in this life is a personal choice and we make choices day in and day out and we experience the results of those decisions. It would be wise to choose a boss in a work environment where you feel that there's wholesome things going on there. Because if you're in an environment where you feel stuck and you don't feel that it's a wholesome environment, you're going to dread going to work every day. And it's going to be utterly difficult for you. So if that's part of what you're experiencing, 
I would suggest you work on cleaning that up over whatever period of time. It might mean going back to school. It might mean getting some more education. It might mean doing some other things. But over the course of many months or years, you can clean up that decision and move into a better environment. And then at the same time, you're learning and practicing these teachings. So the things that other people are doing around you aren't affecting your mind in the same way as they might be right now. But if people are doing unwholesome things like killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, substances that cause heedlessness and all these other things, it's going to continue to produce unwholesome results in your decision to be part of that environment. You're going to experience that. So you need to kind of gradually move towards what the Buddha talked about is having wholesome friends, wholesome companions and wholesome comrades not as a way of judging people or looking down on people, but just choosing to associate with people that are wholesome. And oftentimes, people who are on this path to enlightenment, your community of practitioners, Nick, Bossom, James, Jacqueline, Donnie, Judith, all these people that are regularly attending these classes and that are participating in the Facebook group and all the people that are coming together, this is like your community. These are people that have similar interests to you. They're all interested in cultivating wholesomeness in their life. And this is why Facebook is so great that you guys can friend each other. You can participate in conversations and discussions with each other. And you can start cultivating friendships with people that are into wholesome things, which may not be something that is very easy for you to do in your hometown. It might not be easy for you to find people that are into these kind of wholesome things. But here in this community, you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people now coming together more and more that you can reach out to and connect to that are into these wholesome things. And that's where you build your wholesome friends. Thank you, teacher. Those were experiences from the past. It's great wisdom to have for the future. There's another question coming in from Lena. Can I pause for a second, Um, Nick? So um, just to clarify on what you just said about the past, right? So we make certain decisions in the past that we're experiencing the results of today because when we make a certain decision, we don't necessarily get the results right away. There's decisions that we've made in the past. It could be a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months, a couple of years ago that ultimately we experience the results of today. And we're experiencing those results right now based on our experiences and decisions that we've made. We experience those results. Well, you're continuing to experience the results of those decisions in the past, but you've got to purge all of that. You've got to clean all of that up. Not just you, Nick, not just Christina, but everybody on this path to enlightenment. Once you start learning and practicing the Eightfold Path and you start producing all wholesome decisions through right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, you're essentially burning off the unwholesome decisions that you've made in the past, and you're cleaning up your decisions. And you've got to experience more and more and more decisions over a year, two years, three years, four years, where you're just producing nothing but wholesome decisions through this eightfold path and you're essentially burning off the results of the decisions you made in the past 
a person like an ex-spouse, if you've got a young child, like eight, 10 or 12, you've kind of got six, eight, 10 more years to burn that off before maybe you're not around this person so much because your child has reached the age of 18 and there's no longer visitation going back and forth. But even still, at marriages or college graduations, every three or four years, five years, you're gonna see this person, but you're kind of burning that off more and more. If you've made decisions about certain friends or certain jobs, or we've all made certain decisions in the past that we realize, wow, that wasn't the best decision, especially now that you're learning these teachings, you might look back and say, wow, that wasn't such a good decision. Well, now that you are learning these teachings and you're making wiser and wiser choices that are leading to more and more wholesome outcomes, You've got to look at those decisions you made in the past and clean those up through practicing these teachings and making sure that you fix those decisions. Sorry, Nick, I know I'm answering your girlfriend's question. I know this isn't true, but say you picked a partner, Christina, that was unwholesome and you were with that person right now, which isn't the case. But if you were, then moving into these teachings, someone either needs to clean up that relationship and make it more healthy and make it better and kind of work together as a couple to improve that. Or the person might need to actually move on and they might actually need to end the relationship and move on. And this is part of cleaning up your relationships, cleaning up your gamma, cleaning up the results of your decisions. And every single person on this path will need to be able to do that in order to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Because if you're surrounded by 10, 20, 30 people who are just hostile and aggressive and bombarding you with nothing but negativity day in and day out, you're going to find it very difficult to ever get to a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Even though all of your work is inward and inside, if you're surrounded by nothing but negativity, it's going to be really hard for you to work on your own mind. So that's why the Buddha teaches that we should cultivate relationships that are wholesome and we should have wholesome friends, companions and comrades. Because if you surround yourself by more and more wholesomeness, then it will tend to promote you developing a wholesome mind where you're cultivating wholesome qualities. So there's a certain amount of cleaning up that we all will have to do as part of this path to enlightenment that involves our past decisions. And that's where the natural law of gamma is there for you, that where you see that you have made unwholesome decisions that are leading to unwholesome results, you then use these teachings to clean that up. And that's how you get more peacefulness going forward in your life. Thank you, teacher. I got one more question um, from Lena coming in. She asks, is it okay for you to be there for someone after they hurt you in the past? even if you are unsure what their current intentions are? Yes, but you have to understand what is this hurt if somebody hurt you. If somebody physically hurt you, okay, you know, they actually physically hurt you, right? But if you just had a certain experience and your mind became sad or your mind became angry or your mind became frustrated, that person didn't cause that your own craving desire attachment did that's what i was talking about that discernment that you look at what is the real pain is it painful feelings that are being caused by your own craving desire attachments that's the feelings in your mind 
or is it this physical pain? Is it this other type of pain that can be inflicted upon us by another person? And I'm thinking like physical pain or sexual abuse or things like this. Those kind of situations, if you would like to still be around the individual, that's your choice. But you have the understanding that this person can potentially physically harm you and they've done that before. You can distance yourself from somebody while keeping yourself safe and not engaging in further decisions that would cause harm to the physical body, for example. So you can choose to separate from somebody while having loving kindness and compassion for them, but just not putting yourself in a situation where they can do further physical harm to you. If somebody's hostile and aggressive verbally with you and you're like, "Mm, I'm just not interested in being around this person very much, you can choose once again to distance yourself from that person, hold loving kindness and compassion for them in the mind, and then just in your mind wish that they're well and just know that it's best if you don't spend a lot of time with this person because that kind of conduct coming from another person is going to erode your mind. It's going to degrade your mind. It's going to make you feel lesser of a person. It's going to diminish you. And it's going to be really hard for you to develop this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy if there's people around you that are diminishing you and degrading you and saying really hurtful and harmful things. So whether these people are family members or friends or co-workers or what have you, we can always make the decision to distance ourselves. in most cases. Unless we're a minor living with a parent, we can, in most cases, move away from this and kind of distance ourselves from it as we work on our own practice. And oftentimes that can be one of the best things you can do for this other person. If it's just hostility with verbal aggression, oftentimes more and more people distancing themselves from that person can bring to their attention that they're doing some harmful things and this can help them to work on their life while you're working on yours. So I don't ever suggest anybody stay in any kind of harmful situation, but if that's what you choose to do, you know, just know that that's what you're choosing to do and that harm can always come to you at any time. And that's the result of your decisions. We have a quick question on Facebook from Adrian. Does compassionate action sometimes mean just being present and listening, not always needing to have the answers, protecting and or doing something for the other person? And how do we know when to do more than listen so it generates good karma? Yeah, see, this is a perfect example of something I was just saying earlier towards the beginning, is that this compassion that we practice, concern for the misfortune of others, that's the general guidance that the Buddha is sharing. But there's kind of 10 million different ways to practice that. And here's one example where it might be just listening and understanding the person and just giving them someone to listen to. And that can be a way of practicing compassion where there's other variations of that that we can do. And every situation's different. There's no way for me to give you any kind of variables in which to determine, you know, when's the right time to listen. Other than I always think listening is always good. Asking questions is always good. And if you think that you would like to help this person, but you're not sure of whether they're open to your advice, you can just ask them. 
would you like me to just listen or are you interested in me providing you some thoughts and some advice? Ask the person what they're interested in rather than just kind of assume that they want you to sit there and listen or rather than assume that they want you to give them solutions and offer advice. Ask them what they would like and then when they answer, then you know. Questions are very, very good practice. Rather than just broadcasting the way that we sometimes do, it's better to always ask questions to people and then you get to hear what's in their mind and what they're looking for and how you can be a good friend or a good life partner or a good parent. And asking questions is very, very helpful. So I wouldn't be able to give you any kind of exact advice of say, you know, if they did this, then you do that. And if they do this, you do that. This is like a decision tree that doesn't rely on your wisdom and your free will choices, your discernment, your wise decision making. That's why the Buddhist teachings are this guidance that you learn and you understand and then you practice each individual situation, you reside in the present moment, listening and understanding what's going on, and you make wise decisions based on what's going on in that present moment. All too often in today's society, people try to come up with these standard stock answers that if this happens, I'm going to give this statement. If that happens, I'm going to say this. And there's no permanent answer that you can give that's right in all situations. So that's where you've got to be a compassionate individual. You need to be a loving and a kind individual and reside in the present moment, taking in the information that's there for you and make a wise decision that's going to be unique to that individual, to that situation, to that time and place. And if you're using these universal teachings of universal love of all beings, do no harm and be a good moral person, then you know that you're coming from the right place and you're just interested in helping this individual and then that's where you look to your questions and ask them what they need you know how can i help you in this situation what do you need from me what would make this better for you is there something i can do to help you in this situation what is it that you need to make this better right these are all multiple questions that you can ask but you can't just pick one of them and then that's going to be your stock answer in all situations because that's the mind craving permanence and wanting this decision tree that if this happens, do this. If that happens, do this. We've got to be wiser than that. We've got to have more awareness of mind than that. We've got to have more consciousness than that where we can bring our wisdom to any situation and make wise decisions in the present moment based on these good, wholesome teachings that the Buddha shared with us. Would you say, David, that in some sense it's the clarity and explaining and applying these universal teachings that really sets the Buddhist teachings apart? You know, the Buddha didn't share these as universal teachings. I'm sharing them from what I observed. You won't see anywhere where the Buddha says these are the universal teachings. This is what David Roylance as a teacher wrote as chapter one in order to create this bridge for people and to help people see this commonality among all traditions. These are all core aspects of the Buddhist teachings, but they're also core aspects of Jesus' teachings, Prophet Muhammad's teachings, Hinduism, and a lot of other traditions as well. So you won't see these really laid out in this way in the Buddhist teachings, but these are good, wholesome practices that if you come back to these as a foundation, then you can build everything else 
off of this. But the Buddhist teachings are very unique to what the Buddha taught. Jesus' teachings are very unique to him. Prophet Muhammad is unique to them and all the rest. But you'll see these commonalities. And this is what I'm sharing with you, that all of these original teachers, while their teachings have been affected by impermanence and people don't understand them as much, while there's been these organizations that have been created to collect these teachings and disseminate them out into the world with rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, when you look back to what the Buddha taught, what Jesus taught, I'm not as familiar with Prophet Muhammad and some of the others, but when I look at what I do know about all these teachings, they all seem that they're coming from this same place of helping the individual improve, helping us to have a better life, helping us to relate to each other in a more harmonious way. And these core teachings of love, no harm, and good morals seem to be common across all of them. There was a bit of talk about relationships earlier, and I was wondering, since we're talking about religions, do you have any advice for people who may be in, on this path, but in relationships with a person from another religion or who may not be on the path? Yeah, this is really challenging that when we get into chapter 15, we're going to talk about true love and love without attachment. And one of the things you'll hear me share there is that I suggest that if possible, that you find a partner who's interested in similar things as you and practicing these similar teachings. But when I say similar teachings, it doesn't necessarily mean they have to be practicing the path to enlightenment or Buddhist teachings. What I would suggest that you do is that you look for a partner that even though they might not be learning and practicing things like the five precepts, for example, and they might not think of it as the five precepts, but look for somebody who's not killing other living beings and living compassionately. Look for someone who's not stealing, someone who's not having sexual misconduct, someone who's not lying, someone who's not taking substances that cause heedlessness, because these are teachings that were taught to us by our original caregivers, our moms, dads, uncles, aunts, grandparents, a lot of people have taught these same things. The Buddha teaches them at a much deeper level. But these kind of common teachings that you'll see amongst lots of different groups of people, if you understand that for your own life, it would be unwise for you to steal and it would be unwise and unwholesome for you to lie and it's going to cause harm for your life if you lie, then why would you involve somebody in your life as someone like a life partner? someone who's really close to you, that decision of who your life partner is has enormous impact to your life because you're living side by side with this individual on a continuous basis. So while your decisions only affect you and their decisions only affect them, your decision to have this person as your life partner is going to affect you. So when they start stealing or they start lying, or they have sexual misconduct. While it's their decisions to do those things, it's your decision to select them as a life partner, and it's going to create impact to you based on your decision to have them as a life partner. So it would be really wise to select partners in your life that are practicing these good, wholesome teachings that don't necessarily have to consider themselves on the path to enlightenment, but at least you see the commonality of these teachings that the Buddha taught with these other people in their practice. And then added to that, if you're going to have a life partner, it's important that 
you guys come to a common understanding of what love is because what true love is and what we tend to practice as love is very different. I'll talk about this in chapter 15, but what we tend to think of love in the unenlightened state is, I love you, therefore I want you to be with me because you make me happy, right? And and by you being with me, it makes me happy. It makes me fulfilled. It makes me feel whole. And I love you, so be with me. This isn't actually love. This is craving, desire, attachment. There's probably love in there. But when you're wanting somebody to be with you, to complete you and make you feel whole, and you want them to be with you because they make you happy, this is actually selfishness. This is I want you because you make me happy and I have these conditions. And if you meet these conditions, then I will love you. And if you stop meeting these conditions, then I don't love you anymore. I've fallen out of love with you. This is why people say I've fallen in love and I fall out of love. It's actually not love that they're talking about. It's actually you're meeting my conditions. So therefore I love you and I'll say I love you. And then when you stop meeting my conditions, I will stop loving you. This is actually craving desire attachment. What true love is, is true love is I love you. Therefore, I would like to see you be peaceful and I would like to see you be well. Over here in the unenlightened mind, this conditional love is I love you. Therefore, I want you to make me happy and I want you to be with me. And as long as you're with me, I'll be happy. And as long as you meet my conditions, I'll be happy. But as soon as you stop meeting my conditions, I don't love you anymore. And I'm not happy with you anymore. You're out of my life. That's actually not love. But we call it love. And we practice it. And we think it's love. But it's really not. So over here where we have this unconditional love. Where we say I love you. Therefore I would like to see you be well. And I'm going to support you and encourage you. And motivate you in all your free will decisions. So over here we're kind of crushing the relationship. And we're sabotaging it. Over here, we're kind of holding the relationship nestled in our hand and saying, I'm going to support you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to help you along in life as your life partner. But we'll make free will decisions on our own. These two have completely different results and they have completely different ways of practice in our life. So if you're with a life partner that's thinking this is love, this conditional love, While you're thinking and learning about this unconditional love over here, there's going to be a lot of conflict in the relationship. So when you're choosing life partners and you're dating or you're engaged or you're newly married or you've been in a relationship for a while and you're spending time with each other, you've got to get to a point where you guys have multiple discussions about what true love really is and how you're going to practice this true love so that you both aren't pulling and tugging at each other. Because if this person thinks love is attachment and I've got to be attached to you at the hip every single moment and you're thinking, oh, I don't like attachment. It leads to discontentedness. Please leave me alone. Like I just want to go off and do my own thing. Then you guys are going to have challenges with each other. So when I say that you find someone who's practicing the same teachings, if they were practicing the Buddhist teachings, that would be ideal. But you at least have to get to this commonality where you're practicing this universal love for all beings and you know what that love is. 
you're practicing doing no harm and being a good moral person and you have these genuine commonalities about the type of moral conduct that you're going to have in a relationship. Because if you guys disagree on these things, then it can be very difficult because you're pulling in different directions. Thank you, David. Let's get a Bassam now for any Zoom questions. Mina has a question. She says, a question about goodwill towards all beings. When reading the newspaper and discovering some unwholesome behavior from business leaders or politicians, the mind has to work a bit deeper to not become attached to or have expectations of those who may do harm. Will this eventually be eliminated in the mind if continuing the practice of letting go? It's not going to automatically let go from the mind. There's nothing in this practice that's going to automatically just fluff off from the mind. You have to take conscious decisions to actively work to eliminate these things from the mind. What this is, is if you're reading the newspaper, you're watching the news and there's things that are going on in the political world or in community leaders, and you're angry because of the decisions that other people are making, this is the mind not comfortable with other people making decisions and disagreeing with those decisions and wanting the world to be a certain way. This is the mind holding on for the world, craving for the world to be a certain way. And this is where you've got to let go. And you've got to realize that there's 7.5 billion people in the world. Everybody's making different decisions that they think is in their best interest or the best interests of the world. And you're not going to agree with all of those decisions. And you don't have to. And your prime minister, your president, your politicians, your community leaders, even back to life partners, your life partners are going to make decisions that you disagree with. And if you expect that every single decision that people make, you have to agree to it. And if it's not made in regards to the way that you think of the world, that's the mind craving permanence, wanting things to be a certain way. You've got to let go of that and realize that everybody's going to be making their own decision and you're not always going to agree with it. And that's okay. But the decisions that you make in your life based on what you do and how you conduct your life, you have complete control over that. And the more that you train your mind in this wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, you can have more and more control over your decisions and control over your mind. And every single decision you make can be wholesome. But the world isn't going to function based on the way your mind functions. Everybody's mind functions differently. So you've got to let go of wanting things to be a certain way and realize everybody's got to make their own free will decisions. And then you just make decisions in your life to ensure that your life is headed in the direction that you would like it to head. Thanks, teacher, for your guidance and for all your efforts. Uh, no more questions for this time. Okay. So that's everything that I had planned to share with you guys for today on this topic. It's just a short little chapter, just kind of a warm-up to what we're going to be studying going forward and kind of like this bridge, like I talked about, kind of bridging people from wherever they're starting and looking at how the Buddhist teachings have some similarities to some other things that you've probably studied in the past. Next week on Sunday, we're going to be in chapter two, which is titled, Why Study Gautama Buddhist Teachings? You'll read in the book my thoughts on that, about why we should study Gautama Buddhist teachings. 
But next week, we're actually going to be doing something very different than we've been doing so far in this program. We're actually going to have a group discussion. And I would like to encourage as many people as possible to come into Zoom in order to have that group discussion. You can certainly participate if you're in Facebook or YouTube, but we'll have a group discussion where we'll talk about why have you chosen to practice the Buddhist teachings? Why have you chosen to study Gautama Buddhist teachings? Because you'll see my perspective in the book, and I actually just added two new pages to the book on this topic. So if you're downloading the book and you are using the soft copy, you can download it now and you'll kind of see these two additional pages that I added to that chapter just uh, yesterday, I think it was. And you'll see my perspective of why I choose and why I think that other people should choose to practice these teachings. But rather than just rely on what I say and hear what I say, you'll see that in the book. We're going to instead use our class time next week to have a discussion. And this will be a great time where you'll get to know other people and, you know, you'll get to hear from other people and kind of get to know your community a little bit. So that'll be a really interesting class for you to be able to join and participate in next week. On Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation. This is our very first class of a four part series. So I'm going to start out explaining, you know, the problem in the unenlightened mind and what loving kindness meditation is remedying and why we use loving kindness meditation to transform these various aspects of the mind. And then we'll actually do it together so you can actually see how to incorporate loving kindness meditation into your practice. So you'll understand why we're doing it and how to do it. And we'll actually do a session together. And we're going to build that up over four sessions. And then it's next month that we're going to do the chanting. Since there was a lot of people that were asking about chanting, we'll actually incorporate chanting and I'll explain why we do that or if you would like to do that, why you might decide to incorporate that into your practice. So I may see you on Wednesday with loving kindness meditation or I might see you on Sunday with chapter two and feel free to read before and or after the class and we'll see you then have a lovely rest of your day thank you for listening to this podcast to provide support for this podcast visit patreon.com forward slash support buddha to access more teachings visit buddhadailywisdom.com There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.